Thank you, Garrett, for leading that song for us. Beautiful sentiment and a wonderful way to be worshiping God together this morning. In Proverbs 29 and in verse 25, the Holy Spirit reveals something very important for us, I think, something very practical on a daily basis, something that has a broad level and amount of implications for us as children of God. Wisdom tells us there that the fear of man brings a curse, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. I'd suggest to you that fear is a tool of Satan used to bring destruction on mankind. And the ultimate cause of fear is sin, which brought death into the world. We read a little bit about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then in Hebrews chapter 2 about how Jesus becoming a man and then conquering death releases us who were in bondage to fear of death. But even though we know as Christians we can be raised from the dead, that Jesus has conquered death, and so we have hope of victory as well, fear still strikes us and encumbers us all too often. This is a verse that could be looked at on a couple of different levels. It may be an objective consideration where we speak about fearing other men. And so the object of our fear is another man. And that's certainly debilitating, something that we need to be aware of and make sure that we trust in God so that others don't dictate and Satan through them how we would live our life, because we can't be faithful if that's how we're living our life. There's also another very real application to this, which comes from a subjective reading of the text, speaking of fear perhaps within man. And I think certainly while we may fear others outside of us, we have inward fear and turmoil that we deal with and struggle with on a daily basis at times, and that can be debilitating. It says that the fear of man brings a snare, a, a snare to trap us and kill us and take our lives from us. Not physically, but especially spiritually. But he continues that whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Shall be safe literally means to be lofty, to be set on high so as to be above any of the lower dangers, to be protected, secure, unreachable from those who would cause harm. And so fear is debilitating. Faith in God is liberating. It is empowering. And it's definitely necessary in order to live a life pleasing to him. In Revelation 21 and verse 8, among a list of characteristics and sins of which people would inhabit the eternal burning lake is cowardice. The cowardly will be there. Those who are timid, those who are fearful, and therefore are kept from standing for truth and living righteously. You might remember as we recently studied in Luke chapter 21, the kind of fear and struggle that the destruction of Jerusalem would bring upon Jews and then also Christians who would experience that time and how Jesus warned them about how they could get out. There would be a moment where they could flee. It tells us in Matthew 24 and verse 12 
that because of lawlessness abounding, the love of many will grow cold. And he says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. That great time of turmoil when Jerusalem would be close to destruction and all of these various things would be happening, the love of many would grow cold. They would be timid, cowardly. Because of their fear of man, they would stop trusting in God. But the one who endured ultimately would be safe with God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, as the Apostle Paul is nearing the end of his ministry and he's passing on the mantle to his protege, Timothy, he tells him, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul was going through a lot at this time. And Timothy would go through stuff too because he would be taking on that same mantle of faith and proclamation of the gospel as Paul had. And so to ensure that he has what he needs to do his job to fill whatever space of Paul's shoes he could possibly fill, he couldn't fear. And God did not equip him with fear, but the opposite of power of the gospel of love that is of God and man that would drive him to do things that he otherwise would not be inclined to do of a sound mind, a a proper judgment and evaluation of how things really are and though a self-discipline to control himself in times that would normally, for a normal person separated from Jesus, move him to do things that he would not do or not do things that he normally would do and knows he needs to do. Fear is debilitating. It sets a snare, and if we're not careful, we'll fall into that snare, and we'll not be able to do the Lord's will. And so the key is trusting in God, because that's protective. It it strengthens us to do what he would call us to do. In his commentary on Proverbs, Colin Delich says on this verse that the fear of man plunges him into yet greater suffering than that from which he would escape. Confidence in God, on the other hand, lifts a man internally and at last externally above all his troubles. We we would be inclined through fear to alleviate that problem through means which would actually heap upon that problem more problems. But the one who trusts in the Lord is one who finds deliverance and ultimate strength. Another commentator said that he who through fear of what man may do to him, think or say of him, does what he knows to be wrong, lets his moral cowardice lead him into sin, leaves duty undone. Such a man gets no real good from his weakness. He outrages conscience. He displeases God. See our Lord's words. Whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Such trust carries a man safe through all dangers, fearing to offend God, living as always under his eye. He feels divine protection and knows that whatever happens is for the best. And so you see the great contrast between fear and faith, between cowardice and trust. We can't let the fear of man outside of us, but also inner fears and struggles and anxieties keep us from doing what God's will dictates. And I think that that is one of our greatest trials in this life is overcoming fear and doing what we know the Lord says we ought to do. We can't live with fear or we can't live with God for eternity. We've got to put our faith in God and 
That's where we gain victory. In 1 John 5 and verse 4, John said by inspiration, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so the trust in the Lord brings safety, while the fear of man brings a snare. And like I said, it's a verse which brings in so much practicality. There's so many applications that we could spend time with this morning. I want us to consider one, and then Lord willing, next week we're going to follow up with it as well and consider another I want you to turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, a very familiar psalm to us. It's one which we go to for a, a theological consideration, for lack of a better word. It's, it's a description of some of the most impressive characteristics of God, characteristics that Jesus himself exhibited in his life, at least to a degree, as we know that he was in the flesh. Of course, he couldn't be everywhere at all times, but he knew everything at all times. And so it speaks of the omniscience of God. He's all-knowing. It speaks of the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. And really, that's just a, a figurative kind of description of his omniscience and the implications of it. And then his omnipotence is displayed as we read of the creative power in a human being. But I think that if we consider it in its context, it brings about far more practical benefits to the lives of those who belong to God. And while we're talking about fear being a snare and faith being a haven, I want to suggest to you that a lot of brethren, especially those of our younger brethren, go through a sort of identity crisis as they're growing up, as they struggle with relationships and how they are devoting themselves to Christ and sticking out with their friends in the world. And trying to fit in when they also know what they should be as a Christian would make them stand out and not really in a good way in the eyes of those who are their peers. They struggle with that, I think. And I don't think it's just something that is unique to our youth, but I think we all struggle with it, not just in the past, but presently. Work is a big challenge to you, isn't it? Where you have those who are worldly, And you need to stand apart from them as one who is holy. And it brings about so many different kinds of challenges. I don't want to be excluded, but if I trust in God and I follow his way, I will be excluded in a large part. I'll be sanctified, which is not just a positive thing to God's service, but a negative thing away from the world and what they're serving and what characterizes them. And that's scary. That's a challenge. And I don't think we should minimize it in the lives of our youth. I think that we're initially as adults, especially those who have been at adulthood longer than even I can think of a person in their teens struggling with those kinds of things as as trivial. They don't know what the world is really about and the real world is, and they don't know what kind of challenges they'll face. And, And we need to be careful we don't despise our youth in that way. You don't really know what struggle is. Yes, they do. And it may change as they go through their life. But I want to suggest to you that their struggle with identity is real. The fear that they have is real. And I think Psalm 139, if we understand it on that level of discipleship and relation between ourselves and God, will go a long way to solving that problem and promoting trust, which brings us safety which brings us deliverance and freedom to do what we were created in Christ Jesus to do. 
You might remember in Exodus 19 when Moses told them that God wants you to be his people and he's delivered you and bore you on eagle's wings for this purpose that you'd be a special treasure to me above all people, a holy nation, a, a nation of priests. That's a blessing. And I think that they would understand it as such. But the blessing is only made possible through the conditions met and provided for by God and by Christ for us. They would be a holy nation. They would have a different law than anyone else. They would have to realize who was among them in God and act accordingly, set themselves apart, be pure. And there were so many different regulations spiritually and ceremonially that would lead to that ability to be God's people. And it was a blessing, but also a challenge. So we remember in 1 Samuel 8, when they were struggling with Samuel's sons not being the kind of judges they were called to be, they said, you know, give us a king. And the reason they gave was so that we may be like all the nations. They feared exclusion. Where their sanctification would be a blessing, it was also a challenge. And they, through that kind of fear of being different from everyone else around them, and that promised land gave in to temptation and did what God did not intend for them to do, at least not in that way. In 1 Kings 19, we remember Elijah's fleeing from Jezebel and he, he thinks he's the only one and it's debilitating. He doesn't want to live anymore. And God reassures him, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed their knees to Baal. But exclusion is a real struggle. I don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be different. Psalm 73, Asaph he looked at the ungodly and the way they were prospering and his feet almost slipped. He almost stumbled because he looked at how the ungodly were living and the blessings brought upon them and he was missing out on that. It's a struggle. And we remember in 1 Peter 4 when Peter is talking about how those who suffer in the flesh based on their faith, it's because they've decided to live separate from sin. But he speaks about the Gentiles and how we should no longer walk as they walk and the, the flood of dissipation they're involved in, and they think it's strange that you don't run with them in that flood of dissipation. They think it's strange, and that we can feel that. It's palpable. We stand out like a sore thumb in this world of sin. And while we know it's a world of sin, and that it's far better to be with Jesus, we're in the flesh, and we may fear being excluded. Brethren, if you fear being excluded, and we don't take care of that, we won't be able to live the way God calls us to live. But I would suggest to you, as we look at Psalm 139, we find some information, not just about God, but about God in relation to his people that liberates us from that fear of exclusion and would encourage us through that trust, through that faith to embrace the relationship with the Almighty. And so notice in Psalm 139, as he follows, I think, Psalm 138, you notice in verse 6, though the, the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. And so this follows up with that one who is lowly, especially spiritually in spirit, who has turned to God. It's speaking about his relation to those who are his and faithful. And Psalm 139 is not just some random psalm about God's nature, but about his relation to his own people. So he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And I want us to notice that word Lord as we see in our translations, New King James Version at least, and I think other major translations. Some 
transliterate, just say Yahweh, but it's the personal name of God. It's his, his name associated with the covenant people. And so this is him speaking in relation to someone who is his child. And it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And you see that personal feel to it throughout the rest of the psalm. It's, this is a personal thing. It's not just God knows everything about everyone. That's true. But here's a, a person in David who's reflecting upon that all-knowing being, specifically knowing him. And so he speaks about me and my, you know, my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off and he cares for him. You notice back in Psalm 138, when he had said in verse six, he regards the lowly. He says in verse uh, seven that you will revive me. You'll stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And then he says, verse eight, Lord, uh, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me, that which is is important to me. He knows what that is. He knows my best interest and he'll complete that. And he says, your mercy endures forever. Don't forsake the work of your hands. That word mercy too, hesed, is the word for the loving kindness, the loyal love that is associated with his covenant with his people. And so don't forsake that. You care about me. And he reflects on how God knows him intimately, my sitting down and rising up, my path, my lying down, comprehensive of his life. You know everything about me. You know what I'm all about. You know my struggles. You know my strengths. You know everything about me. Notice in verse three, he says, you comprehend my path and my lying down. The New American Standard Bible translates the word, you scrutinize my path. And it literally means to winnow, to scatter. And so the, the chaff is blown away when the the grain is thrown up with the winnowing fan and what is what is real and important and substantive is left while everything else blows away and I think what he's saying is that God doesn't just know something about you and think about you on a very subtle and and uh, shallow level but he really investigates you and so where someone else may think they know you but they don't really know you and you struggle with that as well God knows you God knows everything about you. God knows you better than you know yourself. And he says in verse four, there's not a word on my tongue, but you know it all together. God knows. And so he says in verse seven, speaking of that knowledge, he, he starts showing us just how impressive it is with different language about how he's everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And we'd be initially inclined to thinking that, oh, we reflect on our sinful nature and we want to get away from him. We can't get away from him. We can't get away from judgment. I think that's true. But here's David writing this, a man after God's own heart. I think what he's just reflecting on is that I, I can go anywhere at any time in any pace, speed. I can't get away from you. And that's comforting to those who are right with him. And so if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell or shield the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no place I can go where you are not there to guide me, to lead me, to strengthen me, to support me so that I can follow you into ultimate success. Notice there in verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall follow me. You think about just what darkness stands for throughout scriptures and your life. The darkness of fear, of turmoil, of strife, of doubt, despair. I, I may think that's going to overwhelm me, but even the night shall be light around me. Why? 
Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. When he says, indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, the Numeric Standard Bible again translates that even the darkness is not dark to you because the the word translated into shall not hide in the New King James Version literally means to be dark. Even the dark's not dark to you. And so you're everywhere. You're, You're with your people. You care about your people. And so long as I have your word, I have your presence in my life as a a child of light, Ephesians 5 says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. There's no darkness that will overwhelm me. And that's incredibly encouraging. It's not just this is God's nature and it's impressive. We need to meditate on that. But based on that, how does that relate to you as his child. And so I'm fearing exclusion. But then I get to understand about how as I'm excluded from the world because I'm sanctified, just what kind of an individual I have a relationship with and the divine person of God. I don't want to forsake that. I don't want to forget about that. His guidance and his knowledge and his presence leads us and supports us. You notice there in verse 5 that he says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. The word hedged is the word used for besieged throughout the Old Testament where a city is besieged and that's to conquer the city. But here it's talking about how God has surrounded him with his knowledge, with his presence, and then his hand is upon him. And then you notice there in verse 10, even your hand shall lead me. And so he's speaking about how you can't escape from God And that's a good thing because he's always there to lift you up. He's always there to guide you. He's always there to hold you. You remember what Satan said of Job in Job 1.10, that you've set a hedge up around him. No one can touch him. Take that away and things are going to change. God's trying to protect us. And that exclusion, that sanctification is necessary to be in a relationship with him. I want us to be encouraged furthermore by how the psalmist reflects on as he speaks about his relationship with the omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent one, the wonderful purpose he has with him. And in verses 13 through 16, he essentially describes God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence within the very fact of his being. He says, you formed my inward parts and covered me in my mother's womb. And he uses interesting language. The word covered there literally means to weave. And Colin Delich says, to interweave, namely with bones and sinews and veins. And so he's talking about how he, he wove him like a beautiful tapestry in his mother's womb. He, he's the one that created me. I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. When we think about the creation of the human body, it strikes fear in us, reverence for God, wonder. And that's what he's reflecting on. You made me, you did this. And he says, my frame wasn't hidden from you. My bones literally weren't hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, I think representing the mother's womb again. Your eyes saw my substance. That's an interesting word. That word substance is golem in the Hebrew. And it means a wrapped and unformed mass as in the embryo. And he's saying, as an embryo, without form, you knew me, you understood me, you saw me, you were instrumental in that. And he says, you saw that being yet unformed and in your book, they were all written the days fashioned for me as yet there were none of them. American Standard Bible says the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. 
And he's not talking about this Calvinistic idea of predestination or foreordination, but he's essentially saying is that God knows you and knew you before you knew yourself. He had the knowledge of life, of personality, of being, of potential, of purpose before your mom and dad even knew you existed. He's known you your entire existence on a level that you could not fathom. So he says in verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand when I awake, I'm still with you. And so the thoughts of God toward us and about us are innumerable and it impresses us, I think. Remember in Psalm 8, how the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And so he speaks about his presence and his participation and intimate involvement in the very existence of you. It also speaks about the days ahead and the thoughts God has for us as we go forward, not in any individual tailor-made plan specifically for you, where you're going to work, what your education is going to be, but what is the purpose of man but to fear God and keep his commandments, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. And so I've got all this knowledge of God. I've all got all this guidance. I've got all this at my hands as a resource for myself and protection and support to fulfill the purpose he created for me. And so I may struggle with the fear of exclusion, but when I think about whom I'm in fellowship with and what my purpose is, that trust, that faith it provokes will set me on high. And allow me to do what God created me to do. And lastly, and briefly, he speaks of his passionate fellowship with God. What I, I, I know the kind of person he is, a holy, divine, eternal being, and that he has purpose for me. And, and I may struggle like Asaph with seeing the prosperity of the wicked. I may struggle with my friends at school or with, with my coworkers and being different from them. But then when I really think about it, and I think about the blessing and the purpose I have in my life. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty man. I want nothing to do with that lie. In fact, I have such a disdain for it as you have a disdain for it. He says, they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. I, I hear them talking about you. I hear them blaspheming you with their words and the very life that they live as they're not living up to their creative purpose. I'm offended at that. I don't want to be a part of it. So he says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my own enemies. So I'm in, therefore, complete fellowship with God. I'm not fearing anymore. I'm so much in unison with him that I feel the same way about that sinful life. I feel the same way about separation from his holiness. And so notice there in verse 23, he says, search me, O God. And know my heart, try me and know my anxieties. He'd already been doing this back in verses one through three. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. And then he said in verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, cannot attain it. You, I can't know myself like you know me. And so search me. Show me what I need to see. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist would say in Psalm 119 verse 17, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. 
And so we have faith and we trust and we treasure that relationship with this God. That liberates you from fear. That takes you out of the snare. That empowers you to do the very thing God has created you to do. With God so invested in your life, with total knowledge of you, your strengths and weaknesses and needs and so on and so forth, and with that matchless eternal purpose that he's given you, there's no reason to fear exclusion from the world. I, I don't want to be in with the world. I'm not worried about that. I want to be closer to God. I appreciate so much, Garrett, leading us in that song. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be lifted up high. We don't need to fear about being different than the world. We need to treasure that being set apart from them means we get to be in fellowship with the God that we just studied about. Before we dismiss to our classes with a prayer, one of our shepherds is going to address the congregation about this new quarter of classes.